Hello and welcome to the history of Vikings. The Viking Age began at the end of the 8th century, when seafaring Northmen plundered and eventually settled large portions of Western Europe, most notably in England, Ireland, and France. At the same time that this occurred, the Vikings also traveled east, crossing the Baltic into modern-day Russia and Ukraine, where they founded settlements. Our topic of discussion today is the Vikings in Russia. We'll be discussing why the Vikings went to Russia, Viking activity in Byzantium and Constantinople, the Varangian Guard, trade relationships, Harold Hardrada of Norway, and much more. Joining me on the podcast today is Dr. Elizabeth Ashman Rowe, reader in Scandinavian history at the University of Cambridge. Dr. Rowe has been teaching Viking and medieval Scandinavian history since 2008. A graduate of Cornell University, she is the author of numerous articles about Scandinavian history and literature. Her first book was about the Icelandic illuminated manuscript known as Fladierbach, and her second book was about Ragnar Lothbrok. Most recently, Dr. Rowe has edited a fantastic book titled Writing Battles, New Perspectives on Warfare and Memory in Medieval Europe, which we will discuss later, and Norse Gaelic Contacts in a Viking World, which we'll also be discussing later. Before we get into my conversation with Elizabeth, I want to tell you that we've recently partnered with Medieval Warfare Magazine as a way to support this podcast. Medieval Warfare is the highest quality magazine dedicated to the warriors and weapons of the Middle Ages. Every issue features specially commissioned artwork and original maps that bring medieval combat to life. If you've ever wanted to support the history of Vikings, please consider doing so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare, which is only 10 bucks every six months. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission which goes directly back into the show. You can also get a 10% discount off your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Ashman Rowe. Dr. Elizabeth Ashman Rowe, thank you so much for joining me today on the podcast. I'm very happy to be here. Thanks for um, inviting me again. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you back on the show. I know your first interview on Ragnar Lothbrook, uh, which we recorded last summer of 2019, was received so very well, and the listeners very much enjoyed it. So I'm so glad to have you back on the show. And I'm very excited as well because our topic of conversation today is one that uh, I, I certainly feel like it, it deserves more attention, and that is the Vikings in Russia. So my first question to you today, Dr. Rowe, is this, how did the Vikings in Russia differ from those active in Western Europe? I mean, when talking about Viking Age activity, uh, I think most Western readers typically think about the British Isles and Francia, Frisia, Germany, perhaps. But how did the Vikings in Russia differ from those active in other parts of the world? Well, in some ways, they were very similar. If we think about Viking activity in Western Europe, 
We think about Scandinavians who came as raiders, but uh, some of whom eventually settled down. And we see something rather similar to that in Russia. But the main difference is that the first Scandinavians who came into Russia were coming in search of items that they could trade, um, whether that might be rich, thick winter furs, or it could be slaves. And then as the Scandinavians became more familiar with the conditions, um, and also because some settlements would aid their, their trading activities, they began to settle down as well. So in a major sense, raiding and trading are the same across, across the Viking world. And when did the Viking Age begin in Russia, so to speak? I mean, you know, traditionally we think of the Viking Age beginning, you know, towards the end of the 8th century, you know, I think 793 is sort of that uh, that magical date to many people. However, there is evidence certainly that the Vikings, the Scandinavians more correctly, had contacts with other parts of the world predating the end of the 8th century. So when did it really begin in Russia? Well, we certainly have evidence that the Scandinavians were trading with this part of the world um, in earlier in the 8th century. I would say a convenient starting point for thinking of the beginning of the Viking Age in Russia is around 750, because that's the date of their first settlement, a trading station uh, now known as Staria Ladoga. Um, so that's founded in, in the middle of the 8th century. And we know from the artifacts there and then later from burials that, that Scandinavians were passing through and Scandinavians were living there. And who were the major players in sort of the Vikings involved in Russia? Were, they, were there individual leaders? Were there groups of people whose different ethnicities from Scandinavia? Well, Let's see. So as I mentioned, at the beginning of this period, the Scandinavians who were going into Russia were going as as traders, as raiders, as, as slavers. And so the first main trading route was for them to go east along the Volga River to marketplaces run by the Khazars or even uh, into the, the Caliphate, where they could sell their furs and their slaves. And I know you've had an entire interview with um, Professor James Montgomery about this, but just briefly to say that we have sources from Arabic writers who describe these Scandinavian traders, and we get the impression that they came essentially as small villages, that we hear that there are a number of men who came together. We hear about um, their 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 servants um, and and hangers on and also we hear according to Ibn Fadlan's description of the funeral of one of these leaders that there's an old woman um, who conducts the the burial rituals for the leader who has died and also her daughter's sister so we get the impression that there is much more of a community on the move uh, for these traders going down the Volga. We have a slightly uh, different sense for the traders who settled, or the Scandinavians who settled in what's now northern Russia and who um, expanded their settlements south along the Dnieper River. And there we can see from, from their burials that 
they seem to have what we might think of as ordinary Scandinavian families, that their, their women are buried with the characteristic pair of oval brooches that signal uh, the status of a free woman in Western Scandinavia. And so whether these wives were from Scandinavia themselves or whether they were local women who had adopted the culture of their husbands, that we, that we can't say, but we do get the impression from the archaeology that um, in the western part of, of, um, of Russia that ordinary Scandinavian communities began to arise. Fascinating. Well, what should we call the Vikings who were active in, in Russia and even beyond in other parts of Eastern Europe? Is it right to just call them Vikings? Or are we dealing with a more complicated group of people culturally and ethnically? Well, that is, those are three different questions. So from the early part of the ninth century, we hear from um, a notice in a, a Frankish annal that Scandinavians based in Russia had a name for themselves. They called themselves the Rus. And this seems to be a name that comes about through the uh, perhaps the, the Finnish designation for people from a certain area of, uh, of Sweden. But however, however the term arises, it could also arise from the Norse word for men who, who row their boats. So thinking of uh, rowing up and down the Russian rivers. But in any case, this group of Scandinavians or these Scandinavians became known as the Rus, and um, they recognized that, that they were from Sweden originally. At least that's what they tell the emperor in Europe. So in terms of their being um, ethnically, uh, ethnically mixed, we certainly get the impression, as I alluded to just a moment ago, that they very well might have intermarried or mixed otherwise with the people living in this area. So this is a multicultural area in, in any case. This part of the world is occupied by people who speak a language that's related to Finnish. Other parts um, or other people living there are speaking Baltic languages, so languages that are like uh, Lithuanian or Estonian. And also there is a fair amount of migration into this area by people speaking Slavic languages. So it was at least uh, tri-cultural, and um, there were many other groups uh, who were coming and going, being overlords, being attackers, and so forth. Um, the Khazars provided a certain amount of political overlordship and provided the trading centers and, and the peaceful conditions in the east that allowed the trade along the Volga. And then to the, the south of where the Rus were, there were mounted nomads, um, Pechenegs and Magyars, who are the ancestors of modern-day Hungarians, who were like horse-born uh, Vikings who would ride around and attack other people. So definitely multi-ethnic in, in that regard. As the Scandinavians settled in this area, um, they adopted a number of Slavic cultural characteristics. So very soon, the rulers of the Rus began to name their children with Slavic names rather than Scandinavian names. And also, they began to worship some of the Slavic gods. 
So although there are definitely traces of Scandinavian culture that persist in this region, more of them in the northern part where there's a continual contact with, uh, with Scandinavia, less in, in the south. Um, but, but nonetheless, we do see that the Rus evolve or develop into, into their own culture. Well, I'm I'm interested to learn about the Scandinavian trading activity that occurred in Russia during the Viking Age. Now, you know, when we talk about trading and we talk about raiding, certainly something that has come in in recent centuries to um define our understanding of the Vikings, are those two things that sort of are are going hand in hand in Russia, this raiding and trading. There's sort of connection, close relationship between raiding and trading. Yes, uh, yes, indeed. But especially for the Rus or the Scandinavians in Russia, we see trading and raiding as two sides of the same coin, because all the major commodities that the Scandinavians were trading, whether it's in the eastern towns to Arabic merchants or whether it's south in Byzantium, that all the commodities are obtained by by raiding, and I can go into that um, a bit a bit further on. And then also another way in which trading and raiding come together for the Rus is that because the Rus start to attack Constantinople, the Byzantine response to that is to agree to uh, trade agreements or trade treaties with the Rus. Um, So the Byzantines try to get the Rus to come as traders rather than as raiders. And they offer quite a lot of uh, inducements and benefits that the Rus can get if they come as as traders, but also there are quite a lot of security measures built in as well. So we can really see that the Byzantines considered the Rus to be a security threat. So um, in this particular way, raiding and trading also go together. Now, what kind of of trade are are we are we dealing with here? What kinds of goods did the Scandinavians bring to Eastern Europe, and then what goods did they hope to acquire? Their main their main good, if we can call it that, their main commodity was slaves. The Arabic writers um, record that the Rus live by raiding the Slavs, their Slavic neighbors. And uh, they take Slavs captive and sell them to the, the Arabic merchants. And also, we know from Byzantine documents that slaves were a major commodity to be sold in Byzantium. The same Arabic sources also describe how the Rus trade in, in furs. And again, I think of this as a product of, of raiding, at least partly, because furs were the major commodity they were the way that the local people paid tax or tribute to to their their rulers their their headmen their their petty kings so it was very easy for the rus to obtain very valuable furs or furs that were highly valued in southern markets by by stealing them from the local inhabitants and as the rus became integrated with local political structures they could collect these furs as taxes or, or tribute for, for themselves or on behalf of a local ruler. So, so both of these, these commodities um, came, came about as a result of um, violent, violent activities. How interesting. Now, I'm curious as well, you hinted at it earlier, but 
how much interaction did the Vikings have with Byzantium? I mean, the Byzantine Empire was a, a colossal force to be reckoned with during the early Middle Ages, and uh, the Vikings managed to come in contact with that empire. So I think that's fascinating. But sort of how did the Vikings, what interaction did they have with the Byzantines? Really, what was that relationship like? Well, the very first contact that the Rus had with Byzantium was as raiders. So as soon as the Scandinavians realized that the Dnieper River would lead down to the Black Sea and the Black Sea led to, as it were, the back door of Constantinople, they launched um, a, military, a military raid. And so this is in the year 860. So this is even before the Rus had, had settled in, in Kiev. So this is an attack that must have been launched from northern Russia from the vicinity of what would be Novgorod. And so they, they, do, come, uh, they do come as, as Vikings. They must have heard or, or have known that Constantinople was a city of, of incredible, incredible wealth and so a, a, tempting, a tempting target for raids, even as the, the cities um, and monasteries of Western Europe were targets for Viking raiders uh, in, in the ninth century as well. And so the Rus had a fair amount of success, um, partly because they were coming through the, the back door, um, the military defenses of the, the Byzantines were focused on the Mediterranean, where they were engaged with the Muslim expansion in the ninth century. So the Byzantines were not expecting any kind of attack from the north. And it just so happened that they did have a few old ships in the Black Sea that they were able to uh, to launch against this unexpected attack. And the other reason why the Byzantines were successful in, in fending off the Rus is that the Byzantines had Greek fire, so essentially primitive flamethrowers or a kind of napalm um, and accounts of these kinds of battles talk about how the Rus would just throw themselves into the sea rather than be burned alive. And so they, they drowned, um, dragged down by the weight, the weight of their armor. So that was the beginning of Rus-Byzantine interactions. Um, and as I mentioned, the Greeks very much tried to get the Rus to come as, as traitors. Um, although with a lot of security measures to prevent the Rus from bringing weapons into, into the city walls. And so for the rest of the Viking Age, the Rus um, kind of carried and stick arrangement that they would repeatedly attack and the Byzantines would rewrite the trade agreements to, to make them more lucrative. But then also there was a certain desire on the part of some of the Rus rulers to expand their dominions towards the south. And uh, some of them even threatened Constantinople itself. They were never able to conquer it, of course. And in the end, the relationship um, ended with a marriage between the emperor's sister and the Rus prince um, Vladimir. And Vladimir was converted to Christianity. And so then a new cultural and religious connection arose between the Rus and the Byzantines. How interesting. Who were the Varangians, the Varangian guard? That's a term that appears in the primary sources. 
is it not? It does indeed. Um, the Vrankian Guard was part of the Byzantine army, and in particular, this unit operated as the emperor's personal bodyguards or, or guardsmen. And what made it different and useful to the emperor is that the Vrankian Guard was composed entirely of people from outside the Byzantine Empire. So there were Scandinavians, and so men actually coming from Scandinavia, such as from Sweden, uh, Rus, so the, the Scandinavians um, who had been based in, in Russia for several hundred years at that point, um, even Anglo-Saxons joined the Varangian Guard. So the benefit of this to the emperor was that these were men who were not part of the palace politics. They didn't have any local loyalty um, or, or conflicting obligations as all the officials and aristocrats of the Byzantine Empire did. Instead, these were men whose sole loyalty was supposed to be to, to the emperor, and so they were safer in that way. I can also say something about the role that men who went on to join the Varangian Guard the role that they played in Russia before they got to Constantinople. Yes, yes, that would be that would be excellent. Okay. So, one of the reasons why there was a steady stream of fighters going from Scandinavia uh, through through Russia and and then into into Constantinople was that one of the cultural elements that the Rus maintained from their Scandinavian heritage was the idea that any man in the royal family had an equal claim to the throne. And we see this in Denmark and, and Sweden and, and Norway, and the same was true for the society that the Scandinavians developed in Russia. And so there was no law of primogeniture. There was no idea that the oldest son was the person who was supposed to inherit the throne. And so what this meant is that across the Viking Age, whenever the current king became old or, or weak or, or died, there was very likely to be fighting between the various rivals for the throne. And so this turned out to have quite a lot of ramifications in Russia because the Russian polity, the, the monarchy, the principality, was based around a number of towns. So these were trading trading centers or, or centers for administration and, and so forth. And some parts of the Viking world had no towns at all, such, such as Iceland. Um, others had several towns, such as, as Denmark. But in Russia, towns and villages were, were the norm. And so the Rus princes tried to have as many of these towns as possible governed by members of their own family. So that's understandable. But what that meant was when the Grand Prince of Kiev grew weak or old or ill or died, there was an amazing amount of civil war and uh, fighting within the family to see who would get to be the next Prince of Kiev, because that was the, the preeminent position of power. And so with this generational fighting, um, mercenaries were the most useful economic uh, military force that, uh, that could be brought into it. No prince wanted to maintain a standing army if there wasn't going to be fighting all the time. That was expensive and also could lead to some power struggles. 
uh, within within the local area. So when one of these civil wars, fratricidal wars, loomed, then mercenaries were were uh, summoned from from Scandinavia. And then when the fighting was over, quite a lot of those fighters went down to Byzantium and joined the Varangian Guard. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but the late Viking Age, Norwegian King Harald Hardrada, before he became king of Norway, he served in this Varangian Guard, did he not? There's sort of an interesting story there that um, this soldier of fortune would go on to become a Scandinavian king. Yes, we know from from Greek documents that this particular herald did indeed serve for a number of years in the Varangian Guard. And so how he ended up there is in some ways a a story in in itself. So he is the younger half-brother of Olaf Haraldsson, who was the king of Norway and who was killed at the Battle of Stiklestad in 1030. And so it just so happened that Olaf Haraldsson was married to one of the daughters of another Olaf, um, King Olaf of Sweden. And it just so happened that another one of the Swedish Olaf's daughters was married to Yaroslav, the Prince of Kiev. And this made Olaf of Norway and and Yaroslav brothers-in-law. So when Olaf of Norway began to lose his grip in Norway and the Norwegian noblemen, the aristocracy, the the great landowners um, became uh, unhappy with his rule. Olaf left the country and first uh, took refuge with his father-in-law in Sweden and then went on to Novgorod um, and took refuge with his brother-in-law there. And so Olaf thought that he could regain the throne of Norway and so uh, returned returned to to Norway, but then was killed in this battle in in 1030. And so his younger half brother Harold Hardruler um, survived the battle and returned to Russia as a kind of prince in exile. And so Knut the Great of England and Denmark was uh, was ruling Norway. Harold saw that he could not easily go back and defeat Knut as things stood. So he found a new career for himself in in the Varangian Guard. And then once he was older and experienced and much more wealthy and had married uh, Yaroslav's daughter, he returned to Scandinavia and um, forced the current king of Norway, who was his younger half-nephew, Magnus the Good, the son of Olaf, forced Magnus to share the throne with him. And then Magnus died not too long after that, and Harald became sole ruler of Norway. That is fascinating. Um, yet another just interesting sort of uh, infusion between Scandinavian culture and that of that of the East. Well, the Viking Age comes to an end in Western Europe around the 11th century, arguably. Uh, due to the formation of Scandinavian kingdoms, what happens in Russia? Do Scandinavians continue to raid and trade beyond the 11th century? Or do we have sort of this, I don't know, more official sort of formation of kingdoms and monarchies? So the the monarchy that had been created by the influx of Scandinavians in the 9th century, so traders and raiders had come in, uh, as I say, in, in the 9th century, and a particular individual known as, as Rorik or Rurik 
uh, is considered to be the, the founder of this line of kings. And so the rulers of the Rus are descended from him. So Rurik and then his son, Igor. So that's the Old Norse name, Ivar. Um, and then Ivar and his Scandinavian wife, Helga, who we know of in Slavic form as Olga. Their son is, is Sviatoslav, and then one of Sviatoslav's sons is uh, Vladimir, who converts to Christianity, and one of Vladimir's sons is Yaroslav. So Yaroslav's rule in the 11th century is considered to be the golden age of the Rus. So they've converted to Christianity. Um, Yaroslav makes marriage alliances and, and political connections across Europe. So I mentioned that he married the daughter of the, the king of Sweden. So because, uh, because they're all Christians now, the Rus are not fighting with, uh, with Constantinople um, any, anymore. There's certainly lots of fighting to do. And um, there are <laughs> uh, Bulgars in, in the Balkans. There are still um, Pechenegs and, and Magyars um, making the southern steppes dangerous. So in some sense, you can certainly consider that the Viking Age is over in the 11th century um, as, far as, uh, as far as Russia is, is concerned. Um, they've become a very Slavic kind of people. Their, their religion is the Greek Orthodox religion. But nonetheless, they maintain their connections with Scandinavia, and so they trade um, objects from the Eastern Mediterranean. They trade them up to up to Scandinavia. The only reason to make a marriage alliance with Sweden is if Sweden is an important partner in economic as well as military terms. So we see that connection still still ongoing. In the West, we can argue that there were still people, uh, still, still men conducting Viking raids in a fairly old-fashioned way. Magnus Berlegs is killed in Ireland at the beginning of the 12th century on a very traditional style um, of uh, military expedition, expedition there. So the, the far end of the Viking Age is a bit hard to, to pin down, but certainly I would say that in, in some sense, even with the conversion of the Rus to, to Christianity, was pretty pretty much the end. But no, honestly, um, the Rus raids on the Black Sea and on the Caspian, um, they're all from before, before this period. So I would say even by, by the year 1000 or, or even the 990, um, that was the end of the Viking Age in Russia. Indeed. Well, Dr. Rowe, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you today on the podcast. Before I let you go, and of course, I'll include links to all of your publications in the description of this episode, would you just tell our listeners about some of your perhaps recent projects? And as I said, I'll, in, I'll include links to those in the description. Just, you know, perhaps some of your recent books or things that people could pick up of yours should they wish to learn more about the Viking Age and sort of even more broadly Scandinavian history? Yeah, happy happy to do so. My very latest contribution to the written word, it's a volume called Writing Battles, New Perspectives on Warfare and Memory in Medieval Europe. And so this is edited by two of my colleagues, uh, 
at the University of Cambridge and myself, so Rory Naismith and Moira Nguyening. And so my contribution to this is an essay about writing battles or describing battles in Viking Age Scandinavia and medieval Scandinavia. So I go through a range of sources from runestones all the way through to the Battle of Stamford Bridge to uh, give a sense of why battles were described in the way they were across across this period of history. And then another book also co-authored uh, with Moira Nueni and also Coman Etchingham. Um, so these are two scholars of Viking Age Ireland and of medieval Irish literature. And then also the fourth co-author is Jon Vidar Sigurdsson, who is an Icelander who's been teaching Viking Age and medieval Scandinavian history at the University of Oslo for many years. And this work is entitled Norse Gaelic Contacts in a Viking World. And so there we examine the historical facts of uh, transmission between the Irish Sea area. So Ireland and the Isle of Man turn out to be quite important. So their contacts with Norway and Iceland after the Viking Age, and to think about how texts such as the description of the Battle of Clontarf in Saga, where did that account come from and how did it get to Iceland? So in the end, it turned out that quite a lot of this comes out of a 13th century context rather than the Viking Age. But it was very interesting to investigate all of this and dispel all the, the fuzzy, woolly ideas that there must have been constant contact between Iceland and Ireland, because actually that cannot be proved to have been true. But we found many, many interesting things uh, along the way, along the way there. So those are my two two most recent recent works. Fascinating. Fascinating. And again for all of you listeners, there will be links to those publications in the description of this episode. And I recommend that you check those out. Well Dr. Rowe, thank you so much again for coming on the podcast. You're very welcome. Always happy to talk to you about the Vikings. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. If you've enjoyed today's show and would like to support the podcast, please consider doing so by signing up for a digital subscription to Medieval Warfare magazine. For only $10 every six months, you will receive bi-monthly issues of, in all honesty, the best history magazine on the market. In addition to this, you'll be directly supporting the podcast. If you choose to sign up, please do so via the link in the description of this episode, as the History of Vikings will receive a commission. You can also get 10% off your subscription if you use the coupon code VIKINGS at checkout. Thank you so much for listening. Please join us here again for another episode. <laughs> <laughs>